Good afternoon, everybody. Top of the afternoon to you. Did you like that, James? Yeah, I loved it. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. I'm your host, Dr. Matt Townsend. Your coach, your guide on the side today, your motivational speaker. I was motivationally speaking today. And I'm not sure I done motivated anybody. Do you use that voice? Yes, I do. I'm Matt Townsend, your motivational speaker. I spoke to 500 high school students today. Okay. Awesome. I would have given a million bucks now I have to know a, what motivates somebody. I have a high school student in my house. Yeah. And I find it very difficult to speak to her at times. Oh, yeah. It's, it's easier when there's 500. It's easier when you use okay. that voice, too. I think the voice just shocks them. All right. Shock and awe. <laughs> Do you like that? 500 kids uh, out of a 1,500, I could only draw 500. I could only draw a third of them, and that's with pizza. Well, was it during lunch? Uh-huh. They get free pizza. Oh. And they get to come and sit and listen, and I had 500 of them, and it was eight. I had 19 minutes to speak. Oh, geez. Which is really hard. Give me three hours, I'm fine. Sure. But 19 minutes with 500 kids... It was hard. It was really one of the hardest things, which is why I want to learn how to motivate people. Okay. Motivation, you may not know this. It's all about feelings. <laughs> Nothing more than feelings. Yeah. We talked about this yesterday, and you were like, well, I, you told me about how as a kid you used to watch this show on PBS that was the most motivating show, and it changed how you feel – so I, I thought, let's bring that in to introduce today's topic on the show. And what would that be? Well, you'll see. Do with the mad that you feel when you feel so mad you could fight. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. Mm. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag mm. and see how fast you go? Uh, see that, Fred Rogers. Yeah. That's what. That's where you learned about your feelings. Yeah, Mr. Rogers. Do you punch a pillow? I try. Do or do you, you go play tag? Or do you pound sand? Is that what he said? <laughs> uh, no, what was it? The clay, I think. Clay or pound dough. Pound clay or yeah. dough. Or dough. Yeah. I think that's a great way to learn about feelings. Sure it is. Mr. Rogers had a great show. Mr. Rogers had a huge heart and a great – he was a great man. Yes. When it comes down to it, that's who needs to be raising our children today. Unfortunately, he's no longer around. I know. He had a lot of sweaters. That was another thing that was inspiration. Yeah. And sneakers. He, yeah. to this day, is why I always like to wear either a jacket or a sweater. But do you zip it up like he does? No one <laughs> can zip it up like he does. I also like to toss my shoe from my right hand to my left Oh, on beat and then just set it next to me and put my tennis shoe on. But do you have your kids sitting in front of you as an audience when you're doing this? Every night. Okay. <laughs> Every night they're sitting there. I'm like, kids, gather around. Dad's going to take his shoes off. <laughs> and they, but, and they I'm going to sing the feeling song. <laughs> Somebody rub daddy's feet. <laughs> Who's going to rub daddy's feet? But uh, today we're talking feelings and mm -hmm. where feelings come from. Yours came from Fred Rogers. 
Well, my feelings come from lots of different places, That's not where you just Fred Rogers. But Fred taught you. Yeah. It was beautiful. He taught all sorts of different things, though, too. I got a little creeped out with the doll. Well, with, uh, there was the, that. You know the old doll? Mm, Lady, yeah, yeah. what was her name? Mary, uh, I don't remember Lady which Lane. one. No, that was the Lady young, Elaine Fairchild she was, was the, the cute curator woman. of the museum. Yeah, the curator. In the yeah. land of make See, I don't remember all their roles. I just remember there's the scary old puppet that I used to dream about. Oh. She was scary. The king? Yeah, King Friday. King, oh, Friday. king Friday. Their faces were just so pronounced. You know, he did all the voices of those puppets. I did not know that. I really did not know mm-hmm. that until just recently. <sighs> those were the days. That's true. Now what are our kids watching? Something on Disney. And they're singing. You know, there's still PBS stuff. And I bet we could actually talk about kids on TV sometime on this show. We're going to talk about with PBS executives because there's some really cool theory that goes into uh, learning and TV. Today we're talking feelings, though. Where do your feelings come from? And why are you sometimes motivated by one thing more than another? Like what makes you laugh? What movies make you cry? Like you were telling me about how Rambo, you cried all the way through Rambo. All the way. All the way. You just hate carnage. Mm-hmm. Dirty Dozen, too. That's a Dirty sad Dozen. Movie. Sad. That, when sad. he gets shot. And, mm-hmm. Oh. Actually, if you want a really good war kind of movie, where yeah. equals dare. Really? Yeah. See, but that moves you. That that You might be moved differently than me. Maybe we're going to find out we're all moved the same. Oh. See, to me, that's motivation. I don't like moving. <laughs> me either, actually. The um, like, like trying to motivate 500 kids. Some of those kids just wanted pizza. True. And that's all they were there for, I'm and sure. And then some – you know how I got them though? Because a lot of these kids' parents, I know them. I went to high school with them. Oh, OK. So I just spent 18 of the 19 minutes talking about what their parents did wrong. <laughs> Very motivational. Very motivational. And so, they're all going to go home tonight. Mm-hmm. Mom and dad, I know what you did oh, wrong. Oh, yeah. Matt says you're messed up. So uh, – but before we move on any further, I want to do a few headlines. OK. Headliners from the Matt Townsend Show, a summary of stories that you might have missed. See, that little, that little, what do we call that, bump, that little bumper, sounder, that's very motivating. I sat right up. Yes, of course you did. What are the headlines, Sean? Well, I found something on the blaze here that there's a new study from Rutgers University, and it confirms what married men have known to be true for a very, very long time. What? If a wife is happy with her marriage... Her husband will feel better about life. Happy wife, happy happy husband's life. Yeah. True dad. <laughs> Isn't it? Put though? that on a meme. Uh-huh. Make a pillow out of that. <clears throat> That's true. So now it's validated. But the reverse, Is a satisfied true. husband making his wife happy, not true. Not true. Why? Are men harder to please? I don't know. That sounds it's just strange. But researchers looked at 394 couples with an average marriage length of 39 years. Hmm. That's a that's, that's a, a lot of marriage. That's a lot. It's like six marriages. Mm-hmm. They were part of a 2009 National Income Health and Disability Study. Mm-hmm. And couples' happiness and satisfaction were measured with a combination of detailed diaries and ranking tests. And at least one of the spouses was at least 60 years or older. Really? Yeah. And so for both spouses, being in a better rated marriage was linked to greater life satisfaction and happiness. Huh. So the man doing what he can to make his wife happy creates a better life for him. The woman doing what she can to make her husband's life happy doesn't necessarily make her life happier. Mm -hmm. I get that. I believe that. The study found that that women tended to get sad when their husbands got ill – 
But when their wives got sick, men didn't care nearly as much. Shallow. Yeah. Shallow. So it seems... A lot of times women don't get as much out of marriage. Marriage is kind of one-sided. Yeah. So, But as long as you keep your wife happy, you're going to be happy. Yeah. Huh. So it's pretty much up to us. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that's not going to (laughs) work. There goes that idea. Oh, well. Well, you know, um, it's it's about feelings. That's what we're talking about on the show today, the science of feelings. And really, isn't this going to be an interesting little ride? What makes you cry? Why is religion so important to make us feel like one with the universe? What? Where do these feelings come from? We're talking about all of those topics with Jim Davies when we come back, a researcher extraordinaire, and uh, he's going to walk us through how our feelings come to be and uh, what we can learn from them. This is the Matt Townsend Show, back talking feelings right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Have you ever been riveted? It sounds painful. Riveted is the book we are going to be exploring right now. Riveted, the science of why jokes make us laugh, movies make us cry, and religion makes us feel one with the universe. It was just recently released August 5th, 2014 by Dr. Jim Davies who is joining us by phone. He's an associate professor in the Institute of Cognitive Science at Carleton University, director of science of the Imagination Laboratory, where he explores processes of visualization in humans, machines, specializes and specializes in artificial intelligence, problem solving, and the psychology of art, religion, and creativity. Uh, Now, this is a true Renaissance man, by the way, published poet, internationally produced playwright, professional painter, calligrapher, swing dancer, and author of the book Riveted, Dr. Jim Davies. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi, nice to be here. So good to have you. And I I saw a, an article about this, and I thought, oh, this is going to be good. So, Jim, Riveted, explain what the book, why the title Riveted, and, and maybe just get us into a little bit of your research. Well, rivet, the title Riveted is, of course, about when we find things riveting, like uh, we say a book was riveting or a movie was riveting, um, you know. But, you know, you got to – if you're publishing a popular book, you have to have a good title. That's right. right. The first, you know, as a scientist, I wanted to call it, uh, you know, a unified theory of compellingness, and everyone was like, no, no, it's not going to work. <laughs> See, that's <laughs> so, not riveting. You know, no, it's not riveting, and it's, it's, it's kind of interesting writing a book uh, about – you know, compellingness that you want to be compelling at the same time. Yeah, the pressure of that seems, you know, enormous because you got to hit it because what if it's boring? Well, Done. that's right. And, I, you know, nobody's done it yet, but I'm just waiting for some reviewer who can't resist saying, you know, riveted is not riveting. <laughs> um, but, you know, what's funny is that if they actually do that, they'll be proving one of the points I make in the book about repetition and why that is particularly captivating to people. So it'll oh, be interesting. a blessing if it happens. <laughs> so you've got, yeah, you've always got your retort. You've, you've always got the comeback if you need it. Just go yeah, back to the book. Right. Hey, talk about, um, there's power then. I mean, feelings, it's almost like what you're telling us there's a science to them, which means I guess I can work people's feelings. 
Well, certainly. I mean, every. Uh, I mean, that's not that's not too hard. I mean, you could you could go to someone that you love and manipulate their feelings by saying something really nice or really mean. Sure. Uh, every day, Jim. <clears throat> every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but what I think a lot of people don't realize is that there's a lot of research into the reactions that we have to things like art and um, conspiracy theories and religion and that kind of stuff. And so what I wanted to do with the book was, um, you know, these, those are all things that we find compelling or riveting. And uh, what I wanted to do with the book was show that, you know, all of these things capture our attention because they all play on similar underlying psychological principles. So that's why it's kind of like a unified theory, and the book jumps around from sports to religions to, you know, paintings and music videos and whatever else. But again, yeah, everything in life that seems to move us. In the book, you talk about um, an experience being compelling or not. Right. What, what is right. Talk about compelling, and, and I guess that's a critical part, I guess, of feeling, feeling having an emotion about it. Well, yeah, the, the, the idea of uh, something being compelling is that it, it draws our attention. We think, we feel that it's important um, we uh, want to pay attention to it. We might want to communicate it. Um, if it's a statement or something, we might be more prone to believe it. Hmm. Some things just sort of resonate with our minds. I think everyone has had that experience where a song comes on and you just have to turn it up and listen, and or you're listening to a podcast in the car and you're at your destination, but you sit in the parking lot for another oh, yeah. 10 minutes. You can hear the end of it. Or a great radio show like the one you're listening I'm, to now. Yes, <laughs> right? Exactly. So, but at the same time, you might hear, um, you know, you might hear uh, a religious leader, like a priest or something, tell a story in church, and it, it's very deeply meaningful to you, and it feels somehow important, and you want to incorporate it into your life. So that's what that's what I'm trying to get at, hmm. the sort of the feeling that something's important or beautiful or uh, in some way. And I guess I guess compelling uh, is dependent. It's subjective. So what's compelling for me may not be compelling for the next, or are there general kind of more universal, compelling stories? Well, we, as human beings, we really love to focus on what makes people different. Like, what makes, why right. do you like this kind of joke and I like that kind of joke? Or why do, why do you like Breaking Bad and I don't like it or something like that? But, um, you know, we are, the thing is that we're all operating within a very narrow set of things that people could have any chance of finding compelling. So rather than looking at one TV show versus another one, I'm trying to answer the question, well, why do people prefer to watch TV than look at the random ripples in a river? Uh, yeah. Uh, why, why do we want to listen to music rather than white noise? You know, what is it about compelling things that makes them all similar that, you know, so even if there's a movie that you think is a terrible movie, it's still more compelling than, you know, uh, watching somebody read a phone book for an hour and a half. <laughs> Totally. Right. No, exactly. I guess as part of this, the brain then, is it, is, has the brain evolved to want one more than the other? One yes, type of absolutely. information than the other? Right. So I didn't intend to, to write the book to be about human evolution, but a lot, of, a lot of the reasons, the ultimate reasons why we find things compelling can be traced back to evolutionary reasons. So just to take an example, we're really um, interested in other people. We want to know what other people are doing. And the reason is we live in very social environments, and we always have, ever since at least the dawn of agriculture. And our flourishing in this world depends on our relationships with other people and our knowledge of how to manipulate those situations. And as a result, anything that smacks of any kind of people or friends and secrets and all that stuff, we eat it right up. Hmm. And um, anything that doesn't involve people would probably benefit from having people added to it. That's why stories all have characters in conflict, and you know, even music and art, 
people tend to like stuff with people in it better than stuff without people. That's why my wife tells me I have to take pictures with people in it because I can't just take a picture of like the sunrise or a, I need my kids in it. She's more – it's more compelling to have her children in the picture. Yes, and I think that, that science would support that. If you're just looking at pure popularity, people like images with people in it better than they like images without. And, of course, there are aesthetic properties of images without people in them. Sure. But, uh, in general, people want to see uh, other people, yeah. So the brains then – I guess one brain is trying – so it's, it's, we're trying to stay socially involved – and people interest us, and then that would, I guess, over time make us safer because we have people and we care versus those that would have just gone out and watched the, the, you know, the ripples in the water. Yeah, that's right. You know, uh, if you have no knowledge, let's say you live in a, you know, a group of 150 people and you're trying I – mean, we're talking about the evolutionary environment here. You know, you're trying to get food and you're trying to make coalitions and you know, you're giving each other favors. If you're completely oblivious to the power structure of your – group, mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to gather resources the same way that other people who are paying more attention would be. Right. You'll be roadkill. And kill. then that translates in the modern world to paying attention to people on TV, because most of our brains don't really know that people on TV aren't right in front of us. And so it <laughs> feels important to pay attention to celebrities and, and what they're doing and everything, because uh, as far as most of our brain is concerned, not, a, not the conscious, deliberative part, but, you know, a lot of our brain reacts to people on TV the same way it does to people that are right in front of us. Really? So that's the old brain, new brain kind of dilemma. Is that is that where right, that goes? Right. Huh. Right. So a lot of our um, – so we talk about old brain and new brain. Of course, we just have one brain, but it's, it's a nice metaphor because a lot of the structures near the back of the head we share with a lot of other animals. Um, they're very anatomically similar. They're functionally similar. And what evolution did was it built new stuff on top of the old stuff without changing the old stuff very much. So really, when people talk about a lizard brain, they're not that far off the mark because a lot of those old brain areas, evolutionarily yeah. old, are functioning the same way they always have. And those things did not evolve to be able to tell the difference between uh, TV and reality. Yeah, they're not. So it's they not, yeah. Firing, you know, when they see a face on TV, it, they do the same exact thing as they would if there was a face uh, right in front of them, hmm. which is basically treated like it's real. And that's we had somebody on that was talking about how our brains don't necessarily distinguish between a perceived threat and a real threat or like real pain versus emotional pain. Is that right. is that true? Yeah. I mean, so so that's part of it. Is it hasn't? We're living a really kind of subjective world. Like it's so up for interpretation, but our brains are all acting as if it's real. Well, part of it is yeah, and I know, some people in the audience are probably thinking, "What well, I know when I'm watching a movie, I know that it's a movie." And you know, of course, part of their brain does. Sure. But think about this: the very fact that when you look at a movie screen. You are not, I mean, you are not really seeing just light on a screen. You don't perceive it as just light on a screen. That's really what it is. You see people, you hear voices, you see goals, you see actions. Yeah. So even if you tell yourself it's a movie, you can't help but perceive people on that screen, even though it's just light. It's just light on a screen. That's true. And, and, and there's, and, but there's also moods that are created and music comes in. All and right, is, right. Is that the so old what, brain or the new brain? Is that the, which brain is that? Uh, well, that's, um, so the front, prefrontal once cortex, accept, once your brain accepts that they are people on the, there are people up there, not just light on the screen, then of course you're subject to their goals and emo- and all the yeah. emotional stuff that comes with it. Right now, the soundtrack of a film or, you know, when you listen to some, uh, emotional music that is partially learned and it, you know, it might be, uh, genetic and evolutionary, but I don't think we know enough to be able to, to determine hmm. that right now. It really is, um, 
And, and it, think of this. This is all stuff we've known, we've done, we've worked. People have been people have been motivating others and generating, you know, change and excitement in others forever. And yet, ironically, we've never known how the brains work. That's, I guess, one of the neat things about what you're doing now is you're able to actually study the brain and see what it's doing during these pleasurable moments or compelling Yeah, very moments. exciting. You know, like you don't need to know how biology works to make a baby, right? Right. No. Um, <laughs> That's but, a very uh, good point. And at the same time, you have a lot of artists who know how to make compelling stuff that don't um, understand, you know, the underlying psychology of why certain things work. Hmm. Right? So been... I'm hoping that this book will be interest of interest to people who not only like art, but people who make art. And, uh, you know, it helps them get, get a deeper understanding. Oh, okay, that, now it makes sense. That's, that's what's happening in the mind that makes this thing work so well, where a lot of artists work pretty intuitively. Sure, exactly. It almost seems like it, it's powerful because Riveted would be great to, you know, create beneficial things for humanity. But if I also know how to get you riveted and, and get you addicted, that's a whole other side of this too, which we could also get into, right? Absolutely. That's one of the things I want people to take away from the book. And I mean, it's not a self-help book, but I think that people can take something away from it is that once you understand the buttons that these, you know, things can press to make you compelled and make you feel riveted, you can be, you can, it gives you a little bit of a psychological immune system. You can put your guard up when somebody's like a really good writer. Sometimes I'll read somebody and, and, and their writing is so beautiful. Yeah. But I'm, I, if I'm not careful, I'll believe everything they say, yep. even if it's garbage, because it's just it's so deliciously beautiful. Yeah. Uh, so you know, when somebody, uh, I'm hoping that it'll, it'll let people step back and say, okay, now wait a minute, this is really moving me in a powerful way. That's powerful. Now, is it for good reasons or for bad reasons? Is somebody trying to sell me something? Yeah. Is somebody trying to get me to believe in their cult? Right. Or something. Oh, I think this is fascinating. And again, as humans, we need to have we need to have this insight. We're going to take a break, come back and talk more to Jim Davies, Dr. Jim Davies, uh, who is the author of the book Riveted, The Science of Why Jokes Make Us Laugh, Movies Make Us Cry, and Religion Makes Us Feel One with the Universe. By the way, go to his website, jimdavies.org. We're going to continue this discussion when we come back. If you have questions about feelings, about emotions, and, uh, you know, influencing, motivating, moving others, give us a call. 1-855-CHAT-BYU. 1-855-CHAT-BYU. We'd love to get you on the phone with Dr. Jim Davies. We'll be back after this break. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Today we are talking about feelings, emotions, what makes you, what compels you to go do what you do, what compels you to hang out with the people and socialize with the people you socialize with, you know, to just go to church, to find something funny. We've got the expert on the phone with us. Dr. Jim Davies is joining us, and uh, Dr. Davies is an associate professor in the Institute of Cognitive Science at Carleton University and director of the Science of Imagination Laboratory, also the author of the book Riveted, The Science of Why Jokes Make Us Laugh, Movies Make Us Cry, Religion uh, Makes Us Feel One with the Universe. Again, Dr. Jim Davies, welcome back. Hi, thanks. Hey, this is... um, it's really, I think it's powerful because, again, as humans, 
there's there's power in understanding other humans and maybe even more importantly, understanding their emotions and, and their feelings and what drives them. How many times has a child seen his parent react a certain way and you would have given anything to be able to read that a little bit better and to know what's causing it? Talk to us about, um, you know, the socializing side of this. It seems like uh, we talked a little bit about it earlier, but it's probably important for us survival-wise to get really in tune with the feelings of another person. Yes, that's right. Um, reading other people uh, in cognitive science is, is often called mind reading or theory of mind or something like this. And uh, certain pe- some people with certain disorders have trouble with it. People with um, Asperger's syndrome and autism have trouble telling what other people are thinking and feeling and that kind of thing. But most of us do it all the time uh, subconsciously trying to figure out where other people are at and who's uncomfortable and who's getting angry and who's lying and all right. that kind of thing. Um, and, yeah, it's crucial. <clears throat> it's crucial for for flourishing. You know, if you look at the uh, ancestral environment, um, certainly you had a small you know tribe or something like that, a small group of people, and you needed to have good relations with those people. But even today, you really can't survive without other people. You have to, buy, you know, buy food. You have to find a mate. You have to... Um, you, ha- you usually have a boss, and, and, you know, it's really hard to have a great life with absolutely no one else. And if you, you know, make those people angry or anything uh, like that, uh, you're not going to flourish as well. And it, it seems like, I mean, even today, um, it, our news even seems to drive that. Like, it seems like the last three minutes of every show, news show, is a really positive story about how they pulled the dog out of a well. And... um I guess that is that to make us is, – is, is, are the news organizations using this? I mean I know religions also cater to these fears and some of these more kind of basic needs of hope and fear. Well, uh, certainly the news is, is of mo- very, very negative. Most news is actually playing to our, our uh, instinctual desire to hear about dangerous things. Mm. Um, and for the same reasons that we've been talking about, I mentioned earlier – Excuse me. That a lot of our minds don't realize that um, people that people that we see on TV aren't real. At the same time, we also don't really understand at a deep level that uh, the dangers we hear about aren't really dangerous to us. Yeah. So when we hear about people getting kidnapped, or we hear about a child getting abducted, or we the or see a movie with zombies yeah. chasing us, you know, we can have nightmares about that kind of thing, <laughs> even though it's not really relevant to our lives. And we're drawn to that. We absolutely are. We oh. absolutely are. I mean, when I was in, living in Atlanta, every morning there'd be, uh, you know, on the radio, they talk about the, the traffic jam. And, and it was always there'd be like an accident on one side of the road and a traffic jam on the other side of the road because of everybody rubbernecking. That's right. You know, We're... and it's really kind of weird. I mean, it seems so natural to, if you drive by an accident, you go on a look and see what happened. But it's also a little bit hard to explain. Why does someone, like, want to risk seeing a mauled body? Why yeah. do they want to... Pay attention to an accident. Why? What information could they possibly be getting out of it? And, you know, it's just part of a general tendency that people remember better and pay more attention to dangerous negative information. And the, the, the evolutionary theory behind it, whether it's true or not, 
the theory is that uh, we evolved to pay attention to danger because, um, you know, basically hearing about danger, seeing danger is a really good surrogate experience for actually being in mm. danger. So rather than, you know, if you watch somebody try to ford a river and they drown, it's a hell of a lot of <laughs> better way to learn than crossing the river yourself and drowning. That's, that's right. Let's just watch others do it. I mean, that's it's interesting. So news kind of caters to the fear side, the, the morbid side almost. Religion maybe caters more to the hope side. Well, religion does both. Um, you know, religions talk about, I mean, people, sometimes people say that religion makes people feel better about the world, uh, makes them feel happier about, you know, um, seeing their loved ones again or something like this in, in afterlives. But a lot of what religion does is it, it makes you feel better about fears that that religion has put in you to begin with. Hmm. Right? Yeah. So, uh, in a tip, like so it a gives you hope for the fear it created. Yeah, exactly. He's like, oh, you might go to hell, but we'll show you the way out, right? Um, yeah. So it's playing to both your hopes and your fears. Isn't that? And, and again, um, it's so predictable, right? For humans, I mean, you do that all the time. If somebody's trying to sell you a feature on a car, they're probably going to go to, you know, the new airbags that will make sure your kids aren't killed in the accident. Oh, okay. Right. I mean, or they might make you, they might uh, uh, put in a desire that you didn't know you had yeah. or you didn't have. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I read somewhere that uh, bad breath wasn't really considered a big deal. Right. Until some. Um, toothpaste company, I think, or Listerine or something like that, uh, started putting in advertisements talking about bad breath and how to cure it with my product. Oh, and now, wow. you know, bad breath is now considered like, oh, good God forbid you have bad breath. I mean, it's, you know, so you got to have all these products. To Isn't that? Of. I mean, it really <laughs> is. And I guess that gets into the predictability. Humans are serious. We're very predictable, aren't we? Even predictably dysfunctional or irrational, as Dan Ariely talks about. We, we absolutely are at some level, and at another level, we're absolutely unpredictable. I mean, we can't predict, you know, what people are going to do exactly, um, but we can definitely predict, uh, particularly groups of people, how they're going to react, you know. And so by having certain kinds of choices and certain kinds of things put in front of us, you know, we can predict what most people are going to hmm. do in response to it. So when I'm watching a movie and um, I know the movie's fake, even though my mind is playing along and doesn't maybe you know, consciously get that it's all fake. Why do I actually feel for the characters in the story? Why am I going along? Why does my body go along with the lie? Well, think about this. The origin of storytelling is probably, uh, the origin of fiction is probably storytelling. And the original reason for storytelling was very likely to, you know, communicate what happened somewhere else so that you don't have to experience it yourself? Mm. Much like we talked about with swimming yeah, across the river. efficiencies, right? So if I tell you, oh, I almost got killed by falling rocks over there, it's very important for you to listen to that. Mm. Now, if you, think about, um, if you think about it that way, then it makes sense to, by default, believe anything you hear. That's right. Only doubt it if you have specific reasons to doubt it. This person's a liar. They yeah. have a motivation to whatever. And indeed, studies have shown that in the absence of any information, people will just believe whatever you tell them. They just, unless they have reason to doubt it, they will believe, believe it. it. And that kind of makes sense because maybe they're telling you something important. Now, we get to the point of storytelling. And so the idea is that fiction, like deliberately generated fiction, is taking advantage of the fact that we tend to believe things. And even on the back, you know, I shouldn't say the back of our mind, but in the front of our minds, actually more accurately, we know that it's just fiction. The reason that the story is engaging uh, is because, you know, a lot of our minds think that it's true and important. Huh. So stories about conflict 
draw on what we were talking about before, our negative negativity bias where we're interested in, in bad things happening. So you can't really ha- – you can't have a good TV show without drama. Yeah, you it's need It's almost it. the definition of a story to have conflict. It's, is it true that the, it's the emotion – because you keep talking about it's important to remember some of these things, you know, kind of evolutionarily. You wanted to remember where the rocks were falling. I guess the emotion, though, facilitates the memory. We need the, oh, absolutely. We need if the we, chemical if you emotion. Have an emotional response to a stimulus, you will remember it better. That's been proven. That's so great. Talk about fact, humor. People studying, this is a university radio station, right? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, people, it's, it's you know, nationwide. And you try yeah. to make, you try to make a, a mnemonic to remember something, some way to remember it. Right. The more violent and sexual you can make it, the, better, the more likely you are to remember that mnemonic because you know, it's, it, it's deeply processed and, it, you know, well, yeah, but then you have to talk in your brain. Yeah. But then you have to talk to the bishop. You got to go clear <laughs> it up with your, with your leaders right. <laughs> your, Anyway, talk about the humor and does it work the same way? Humor is an interesting one. Um, humor, uh, humor is a outgrowth of laughter. And so we'll talk about laughter for a minute. The, yeah. the best theory that I've seen out there about laughter, and none of this is set in stone, uh, a lot of the book is pretty speculative, hopefully interesting, but not, you know, textbook science. But the best theory of laughter I've heard of is one um, is the idea that you see something that appears to be superficially dangerous or unexpected, and but you know that it's safe. Hmm. So you've kind of got this tension between your old brain and your new brain a little bit. Um, and this explains why people laugh at things that are just flat out not funny at all. So <laughs> let's so say that you were traveling so in Mississippi true. and you ran into your next door neighbor. Yeah. I can guarantee that both of you will laugh. Yeah, and it's not because it's very funny to meet that. Person. Nothing funny it's about unexpected, it. Expected, but it's safe, so you laugh. People laugh on roller coasters. I had some friends that were that burst out laughing after they were mugged. After the mugger walked away, and they were both okay, they looked at each other and burst out laughing. <laughs> Similarly, jokes and humor take advantage of unexpected twists, right? So you yeah. tell a joke. It only works when the audience is expecting one thing, and you deliver another thing, and that little bit of tension causes people to laugh to relieve that tension. Oh, my heavens. See, I thought funny and humor was just funnier than that. It's really just a surprise. We're just experiencing a surprise. You know, um, the psychologists have tried to isolate the essence of this, and they have these weird experiments where they have people lift these sticks that are connected to weights, mm-hmm. but you can't see the weights, right? And they have you lift one. It's pretty heavy. Let's say it's as heavy as a a bowling ball. You pick up another one, it's as heavy as a bowling ball. You pick up another one, it's as heavy as a bowling ball. And then you pick up one and it's really light. Uh-huh. People burst out laughing. <laughs> Isn't that... I just laugh thinking about it. I know. I mean, it, it, you laugh... You're probably laughing because you can, you can understand you why can they relate. laugh. And you also yeah. laugh at how stupid it is. Like, yeah. there's nothing funny about a light. No. One of the things being light. Uh, but, you know, you can also sort of viscerally feel... Yeah, I would laugh in that situation. Oh, man. Good stuff. Talking with Dr. Jim uh, Davies, uh, again, the author of the book Riveted, Science of Why Jokes Make Us Laugh, Movies Make Us Cry, and Religion Makes Us Feel One with the Universe. Go check out his website, jimdavies.org. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at the patterns of our feelings, of emotions, and see if there's some, you know, if there's a system to it all. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody. Matt Townsend Show. Hey, a little uh, 
Barry Gibb, Barry and Robin Gibb, uh, along with Samantha Sang, song? Sang, Samantha Sang. There's the song right there, Emotion. And when you listen to it, tell me that doesn't bring back emotion. Oh! This is, I could just see my sisters with their long hair in the 70s just swaying. It's kind of awkward. Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Just taking you down memory lane, a little emotion. Who better to teach us, though? Dr. Jim Davies is on the phone with us, and he is the author of the book, Riveted, The Science of Why Jokes Make Us Laugh, Movies Make Us Cry, and Religion Makes Us Feel One with the Universe. you got to go check out his website, jimdavies.org. You can read his blog there. He is um, an expert in um, humans, visualization in humans, machines, Artificial intelligence, problem solving, the psychology of art, religion, creativity. And today he's just teaching us about feelings and the power that uh, and how we can create those. Welcome back, Jim. Hi. What did that song do to you? Little oh, Bee Gees. That song is, uh, that song is a, a, a great song, and uh, it feels very relaxing to me, and uh, that's, that's the experience I had with it. I mean, it, it's funny, though. The memories flood back, don't they? When you have a feeling, or, and which comes first, the memory or the feeling? Uh, well, you usually uh, have a memory that's associated with a feeling. Okay. Right? So you, uh, if you really loved your grandmother and you smell a book from her house, yep. that can bring back the emotions that you felt when you're with your grandmother. So that would be, that's kind of like a simple association that your brain's doing all the time whenever it experiences two things at the same time. Is um, Talk about patterns, because it, it, I know in the book you do get into the patterns and how as humans we're pretty preoccupied with patterns. Is that part of this process of feeling and, and, and feeling compelled to do something? Sure it is, yeah. So if you think about uh, the fact that humans are very intelligent and constantly trying to learn about the world, and that learning about the world makes us more successful in the world, then our love for patterns makes a lot of sense. Pattern finding of any kind is basically learning some regularity that exists in the world. And so what happened is we, our minds reward us, our, we reward ourselves with a rush of pleasure when we figure out a pattern, huh. right? Yeah. Um, so if there's something that we don't understand, something that's like, oh, that doesn't, oh, that doesn't quite make sense. Um, like, let's say that you're walking down the street and you see somebody with no neck. Like, they have a head, they have yeah, a, a necklace person. no neck. You would look very hard at that person. You try to figure out what what on earth is happening. What there. happened to his neck? And you, yeah, how could that be? And then once you figure it out, let's say it was a trick of the lighter, like oh, okay, okay, now now I get it. So the idea is that um, that that this this incongruity, not understanding, is kind of a drive. It's a drive huh. to understand. And then the noticing of the pattern, the, the resolution of that incongruity, is a pleasure. And you get a payoff. So it's kind of like motivation and pleasure. Huh. So then part of it is, I guess, you, we're using patterns. I mean, our music is patterns. It's all, it's all pattern. You can almost anticipate, and maybe that creates some wonderful effect when they do something that you didn't anticipate in, that, in a pattern yeah. you thought you'd hear. Music is a wonderful example of how our expectations uh, are manipulated and incongruities and patterns interplay to keep you interested. So if you listen to a typical song, it often starts... More, uh, rather simply, a simple guitar riff or a drum beat, and then you know it, the drum beat repeats. It might be, and then after just as you're starting to get used to that, yeah, yeah, okay, I get this groove, I understand it. 
just before you're about to lose interest, it throws in something else. Changes it throws in a baseline. It throws in this. And then it holds on to that for a few bars. That's and as over time, the music in a particular song will get more and more complex. What's, what it's doing is it's giving you a chance to appreciate each one of those patterns, but not leaving it like that until you get bored with it. Right. Well, I guess books are the same way, right? A good uh, An author that knows what they're doing is going to change it up, get you thinking one thing, switch the game. Yes, right. So with books, it's not at the level of the words necessarily. It's not like they'll repeat a word right. a million times until you get tired of it. But what they'll do is they will set up situations that are um, uh, somewhat familiar in some way and then violate that and make you interested to figure it out. I remember I did, I did um, theatrical improvisation for about 20 years, and one of the one of the ways we were taught to make compelling scenes, and these are scenes we're making out of nothing. Right? Yeah. Like we're just on stage making this stuff up on the fly. But it's comedy and, too, right? You, know, you start with what's called a platform, which is a scene that everybody recognizes, like buying gas. And then there's a tilt, which is something unusual that causes an emotional reaction. And people just get really interested when there's a tilt. Interesting. All you have to do is introduce the tilt. You introduce the tilt, and then you know somebody gets upset because because you refuse to pay for the gas, let's say, uh, and then the rest of the scene plays out in trying to find some resolution to that conflict that was brought in there, something unusual about the scene. Or you might, the tilt might be uh, that instead of gasoline, there's Kool-Aid in the, mm-hmm. in the tank, Yeah, uh, and you're angry about that, whatever. It, but what's important is that it's something unusual, and then there's an emotional reaction to it, and that is a, like kind of a, a magical mixture of uh, just incongruity, something we don't understand about the world, Combined with our love for conflict and paying attention to the problems of people that we see in front Wow. It's fascinating. I love how it is a science, right? The science of it, you can you just put it together and you can make you can make feelings happen. Is it the thought then so our brain is thinking and then um, it creates the chemistry, the payoff, like once we kind of throw the tilt in there and we get a little burst of excitement, is that an actual chemical excitement? Or is uh, it yeah. a? Or is it? Is it's just a thought yeah, that turned into chemistry? Dopamine. <laughs> yeah, a dopamine push. It's so great. Dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that's implicated in a lot of things, but one of the things it seems to be important for is drive. Hmm. Uh, so, um, dopamine is behind addiction. It's behind lots of motivating factors. It's not. We used to think it was kind of a pleasure thing, right? Yeah, right. We understand a little bit better now. Like if you manipulate dopamine to make a rat press a bar a million times, our first reaction to that was, well, the, the rat's feeling a lot of pleasure. That's why yeah, why wouldn't the bar. He? Right. It turns out it's not that way at all. It's more like an addict who can't stop. It's a compulsion. Oh, it's a drive. So if you think about the, the incongruity causes the drive again, and the pattern is what causes the pleasure. And it's kind of a, somewhat a different chemical process. Oh, that's, I mean, to me, this is like, this is great. And again, I, I can only imagine because we're really seem like we're just on the cutting edge of all of this, aren't we? We've got so much yeah, more know, to know. This book couldn't, you couldn't have written a book like this 20 years ago. I mean, in the last, only in the last 20 years, really, have we had enough science to really justify um, a scientific exploration hmm. of these issues. How have you been able to mix kind of your scientific methodology and approach to just your artist that's in you? You're a poet. You're an internationally produced playwright, a painter, calligrapher. Do, do, you, do you use the science in your art? Well, you know, since, since I was so into writing this book that I actually dropped a lot of my you gave it all up. It. Yeah, <laughs> that's it. But I, I am I am working on a novel now. You know, it's a fantasy novel, yeah. <clears throat> and I am aware of 
um, of, you know, these things, of course, while I'm writing. And, you know, I read books on how to write good novels and how to make good characters and this and that. And this, it's good advice. And I, and, um, I feel that I have a deeper understanding of why that advice makes sense mm-hmm. now that I've done this kind of research. Well, I think it's powerful. And, again, it's, it's part of survival, but it's also, I think, part of just having a good life is understanding why you're feeling what you're feeling. As we wrap up, give us... Give us, we always kind of like to know, what's the one thing? You know, what's the one thing that we should all remember, uh, keep close to us, about our own feelings and about, you know, others creating those feelings in us? I think that if, if I could just give one take-home message, it would be <clears throat> that if you get a really strong intuitive feeling about something or somebody, yeah, that it's it's good to step back and question it. You know, it might be that some politician is saying something and it just, oh, yeah, that sounds exactly right. Or it might be that you meet somebody of a particular race and you get a feeling, oh, I don't trust that person. Right. In both cases, it's good to step back. Your older, you know, the part of your brain that's intuitive it does pattern matching in ways that you don't understand. And you might be in principle uh, against what it comes up with if you were to think about it a little bit. Did you ask that question? Like when you question it, do you ask yourself, is this aligned? Is what, what would I ask myself? Is there is there something that might drive me to a a quick insight of that would get me more information? I think I think just stepping back and questioning why you're getting that feeling <clears throat> is a lot. Let me give an example. Like um, there's the studies show that women speak less than men, mm-hmm. but but we feel um, like they speak. There's more. this reputation that women talk too much. Yeah, right. That's true. So. If you, if I'm in a meeting or something, and I feel like a woman is talking too much, I check myself. Yeah, I step back and I'm like, okay, no, wait a minute. Is now, that really if, true? If this were a guy, would I be thinking that she's talking yeah. this much? Oh, that's great. That really is. Right? That's awesome advice, uh, Doctor Jim Davies. We so appreciate you and uh, your great work. Everybody, go check out the book, uh, Riveted, and the science of why jokes make us laugh, movies make us cry, and religion makes us feel one with the universe. Go to jimdavies.org. Pick up the book, and again, let's start questioning a little bit uh, more what we're thinking, how we're thinking it, why we're thinking it. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, more, more information on feelings right here on the Matt Townsend Show on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio. Good afternoon, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show, second hour, Feeling Fest 2014. We're teaching you today about your feelings, where they come from, how to manage them. A little bit later in the show, we're going to be talking to Julie Nelson, who's going to teach us how to help our children understand their feelings, their emotions, manage those as well. And our own Sean O'Neill, by the way, full of feelings, uh, lover of the Bee Gees, Loves a good movie. I still, you know, I did have the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack on vinyl. Really? Yeah. Why? Because <laughs> it was cool. The Bee Gees, I love them. They just bring back an era, a time in my life, but I don't. Little Night Fever. A little Night Fever. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like, you know, an mm. infection fever. Yeah, sure. Here's what I want to know, though. You've done some research and have found an article. Well, yeah. 
I found the article, but Matt Walsh did the research. Matt Walsh, a blogger. Blogger. Great. He's taking on America. I love this article. And he thinks we're a bunch of babies. Well, pretty much. Nothing wrong with that. He's, he he thinks – well, here's, here's, here's his Talk opening – Talking about feelings. His opening line. Yeah. I truly believe that we are the most whiny, sensitive, thin-skinned, easily offended society in the history of the world. Totally agree. No hubris whatsoever. No. That's the mattwalshblog.com. Yeah. If you have a comment, write Matt Walsh. Nobody has ever been as prolific as at getting offended as we are. We are offended by everything. Now, granted, some things are offensive. Yes, I would agree. But, but he, he says modern Americans love to get offended more than we love eating Cinnabon or taking talking about our fitness goals. If it was an Olympic sport, we'd grab the gold, silver, and bronze every year. If it was a job, we'd all be millionaires. In fact, we have turned it into a job, and the people who do it professionally are millionaires. So true. It's, our, it's our calling card, our national pastime. It is the battle we fight and the banner we wave. But so I guess what's happening is we're just getting really good at being whiners. Exactly. What does that get us? Well, what it gets us is a concept called microaggressions, according to Ooh. Matt Walsh. Microaggressions. His blog. Microaggressions. Small aggressions. Mm. Micro. No, that. Okay. Here's, here's, his def- here's, here's his definition. A microaggression is something that college students learn about because science and history are too boring. <laughs> according to Wikipedia, it is a theory that describes social exchanges in which a member of a dominant culture or gender says or does something that belittles and alienates a member of a, mar- a marginalized group. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So we use – give us an example. Here's an example. Um, it would be by any definition aggressive and belittling for white guy A – these are Matt Walsh's words yeah. – to walk up to an, an individual, a Chinese individual and say, hey, I hate Chinese people. Go back to China, Chinese person. Offensive. That's offensive. Can't do that. Blatantly offensive. Right. Right. But as taught by the deranged uh, – well, okay, again, These are Matt Walsh's, Matt Walsh's words, words. But as taught by the deranged social theory promoted by nearly every public university in America, a microaggression happens when white guy B approaches a Chinese person and says, hi, where are you from? Or, hello, I'm interested in your culture. What language do they speak in your country of origin? Oh, wow. So, so that's a microaggression. Yes. Yeah. Well, Hello. It's also a microaggression to praise a person for being articulate. Wow. You or can... to acknowledge that Asians are often gifted in math, science, and technological fields. Yeah. Or if you mistakenly think a woman is a nurse when she's really a doctor. But it almost seems like anybody could be guilty of a microaggression. Just by saying anything. By saying anything to anyone mm-hmm. and not being 100% informed from their point of view. Right. Well, according to Matt Walsh, this is what's being taught in our colleges now. So you, so really we're teaching people to be super ultra sensitive. Right. Looking for microaggressions and then be offended. And then what does the offense actually get us? Because it seems like it just stresses us out. According to our earlier expert, it does give us a little, I guess, dopamine pump. Well, I mean, how do you know that you're offending somebody when you're doing something like yeah. this? It's, it, that's hard to figure out. Yeah. If you're just being nice, you know, how are you how can how can somebody be offended when you're trying to be nice? Well, because they're in their head. I guess. But see, it, it seems like well, we ought to find a way to solve it instead of just keep Here's here's another about it. example that I think leads to something that I think is kind of really way out there. 
um, according to um, um, an email that he received from somebody, because right. uh, Matt Walsh had put out some uh, t- uh, tweets yeah. about microaggression. He feedback on microaggression. And so he got some feedback from a sophomore at a college that shall go nameless. Yeah. Um, she says, I, I think it's a she. You know, I don't know if it's you know, a she it or sounds, a he. I bet it's Alyssa. I don't know. It's Alyssa. But anyway, this person says, I saw your Twitter tirade tonight about microaggressions, and I thought I'd let you know that my university has launched a campaign Mm. to make us all aware of our unconscious biases and microaggressions that serve to otherize minority groups. Mm. Today, a girl in one of my classes suggested that pulling out a chair or opening a car door for a woman could be a microaggression because it insinuates that she is incapable of doing it herself. Oh, wow. Lots of people, including the professor, agreed. See, my mom called that manners. Yeah, so did mine. And my mama used to take me over her knee when I didn't do something like that. I can tell you right now, my mom said if she ever found out that I was on a date and I didn't walk the girl up to the door, I was going to get in trouble. See. But, you know, obvious microaggression. Yeah, obviously a microaggression. I, obviously, she can't safely walk to a, right. a door on her own. See, but we, we – so I get we should be more understanding to not – what's the word? Otherize people. We don't want to marginalize everyone. We, no. I get that. Yet – so don't – why do we have to fight and hate each other and complain about it? Why don't we just start talking about it? Well – Matt Walsh kind of goes into that, actually. What does Matt in this say? blog? He says that we are absolutely because he thinks that we're a society of, of victims. Oh yeah, we're absolutely determined. His words, quoting Matt Walsh again, we're absolutely determined to be victims, and I think there are a few reasons for that. What? Number one, many of us have been programmed to desire pity more than anything, even above respect or love. Yeah, I believe that. Number, so, mm-hmm. so then all of a sudden we're paid to. To, we're paid with pity, but we're exactly. not paid with honor. Mm-hmm. We're not paid with respect. Love, charity, and fraternity in order to exist must be both given and received. They are a great gift, but also a duty. Hmm. Pity, on the other hand, works just one way. When a person demands pity, they demand something for nothing. They want to be a recipient, but not a giver. They don't want it mutual. Exactly. One-sided. Hmm. Second point. We have become we have come to believe that our victimhood grants us wisdom and insight. How many times has a constructive debate been derailed when one of the participants suddenly proclaims that only their opinion counts because they're the only one who knows what it feels like? Yeah. Yeah, so it ends the discussion. Exactly. And third, we're bored. Much of the chaos in our culture can be boiled down to this. We are simply bored. We need something to fight about, something to complain about, something to cry about. Mm-hmm. Descartes said, I think, therefore I am. But today we've changed the expression slightly. I am offended, therefore I am. I am real because I take offense. Mm-hmm. But see, what's interesting about this is, and then on top of it, there is enough people, there are, there are enough people out there that are offensive. Yes. That do need to learn not, how not to offend. Mm-hmm. And yet, that's not probably, by being offended is not how we change the others exactly actually he doesn't matt doesn't give a cure here no there's not a cure he doesn't know that there is a cure but there is there are five absolute truths that he says people need to come to terms with what are they quickly if it wasn't intended to offend you then you shouldn't be offended yeah because they're ignorant or whatever Mm -hmm. they didn't know number two you do not get to decide someone else's intentions they do right number three being offended is a choice you make 
Nobody is responsible for that choice but you. And it serves nobody. Exactly. Even if the slight was intended and deliberate, functioning adults understand that they must move on and not dwell over every sideways glance or rude comment. Mm -hmm. And number five, you have to stop doing the trendy internet thing where you write something on a piece of paper, take a picture of yourself holding it up while frowning. It's just annoying. Did you get that, James? I can't do that anymore. Nope. No, you're done with that. Oh, so that's how James communicates through micro, micro aggression. aggression. It's called. Also I thought it was great. That, now there's it's a, a lot article. more to this blog. No, no, this is and go. If you want more about it, go to the Matt Walsh blog. Yeah, just, just search Matt Walsh. And and let's, I mean, I like. I really like that he's taking that on. That's a cool. The actual title is sorry, but it's your fault if you're offended all the time. And again, you being offended, it doesn't mean you can't. You can have an offense, but you know what? Move on. And if you need to correct me, then correct me. But it doesn't have to be offense. It could just be, I get you didn't probably understand this, but some people would take that. Some people are going to get offended now if we just say hi. That's right. But the power of having somebody be offensive to you and then you choose to not be offended, that's how you shut up the offensive people. You don't give them the time of day. Now we put them on TV, on radio, and we let them just keep yapping and yapping, and we keep perpetuating offense. It's the Matt Townsend Show. I'm out of here. We'll be right back with Julie Nelson when we come back right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, in the house, a blast from the past. She hasn't been here for three weeks, and she brings bread and honey. The honey, land honey of bread but- and honey. Honey butter. Honey butter. Yeah. Even, honey butter. Even better. Julie K. Nelson is joining us from a spoonful of parenting.com. She's called the bomb mom, the child whisperer, wife, mother of five children, and, and author of Parenting with Spiritual Power. And friend to Matt Townsend. Which won't get you very far. But by the way, uh, you noticed something. When you walked in, this is how in tune you are. Because you're going to teach us how to be, how to attune to our children's feelings. Mm-hmm. And you walked in and you looked over at James, mm-hmm. a.k.a. Jaime, and you looked at him and you said, something's different. Yeah. You noticed the glow. And the, the smile is bigger. The love. It's a, it's, he's in love. Yes. Or a really, 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 lips, really deep the light. The lips look plumper from all that oh, kissing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, full <laughs> full of blood, those lips. Just, he's, yeah. And he's blushing. But he you know what? definitely is. You nailed it on the lips. Yeah. I didn't want to say that. <laughs> it's just hard to say and look him in the eye. Your lips look more full. <laughs> Julie, welcome Botox back. Botox or girlfriend? No, he's not doing any Botox. I've been good. How have you been? Uh, excellent. I um, love today's topic. I do too. Emotion. I do feelings. too. Yeah. But don't you think, you know, kids need, kids should be seen, not heard. No, is that it? Kids should be heard. Kids, seen, what's the rule? Seen and heard. But no. but the old saying is seen but not heard. Seen but not heard. Mm-hmm. See, that's the old rule. Yeah. We should just we put throw them away. That out. Mm-hmm. We're blowing that up today. We are. We're blowing it up. Kids have feelings, and if we handle them, if we don't handle them right, then a lot of times we'll just invalidate them for having a feeling. 
Right. And terrible things will happen over the years. And we'll talk about research and how kids who have been emotionally shut down will act out in other ways. Um, but I love this topic. Um, we've even had John Gottman on as a guest yes. before. I was with him that? today, that day. Yeah, you and were so excited. I was to so excited. Oh my gosh, he's a hero. And he, one of the books I use in my parenting class in, at UVU is his book called Raising an Emotionally Intelligent Child. Yeah. And I read that, love it. It's a Bible for this very topic. And I take this, uh, these three examples from that book, and this is the, um, the, to help your the listeners know what validation sounds like, yeah. what's our knee-jerk reaction as a parent, and why we react the way they do, and how we should think of a different approach instead. So you have a child, this is very classic, who has her first day at a new school. You've mm-hmm. moved, right? Yeah. He comes home, uh, you co- come home um, from school, and he throws his backpack down and says, I hate that school. I hate my classmates. I hate my teacher. And I want to go back to my old school. Right? Lots of feeling there. Lots of feeling. You know what? That boy needs a spanking. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody needs to jump in and spank that boy. No. So the wrong (laughs) response would be, as the knee-jerk reaction parent is, well, you know, practical, problem-solving parent, well, we just can't go back to the old school because it's too far away. You'll just have to learn to adjust. You missed it. Right? They missed it. Okay. Why were... No, but, I, but see, some wouldn't even start there. Some would start with, don't say hate. Yes. We don't say hate. Hate is a naughty word. Yeah. We don't ever use hate. So, but see, that's right mm-hmm. there. That's my story. Mm-hmm. Me trying to argue, well, we can't go back. We've already moved. Mm-hmm. It's too far to drive. Mm-hmm. Now, the reason why Gottman says that parents responding that way is because he wants the child to adjust to the new school so the child can make new friends and get a good education. Of course, that's a noble thought. Sure. But at the moment, that child's not ready to learn that lesson. That's the problem that's right. with invalidation is that we jump in, we judge, we criticize, we invalidate because we, we have good intentions. Yeah. I, I, you know, this is not good for you right now to be in this mode of hate and right. it's not getting you anywhere. But the child's not going to turn to you and go, oh, dad, thank you for pointing that out to Your me. Your profound wisdom is enlightening. I am going to take that and run with it right, right now. No, no I never do. So, be, so you're not, what we're trying to do is we're, we're moving on. With great wisdom, mm-hmm. apparently, before the the child's with us to move on. So it's does Absolutely. you know good. It's the I always say it's the drawbridge. You have to get the drawbridge down. Mm-hmm. So you can move on if you want, but if the bridge is up, you're not. You can move on. You'll just be in the moat. That's great. That's, so you got to yeah. lower the bridge. So you've got to let them mm-hmm. be valid for what they're feeling yeah. and get some of that emotion. So out. The, for, so validation would be parents stop. Don't say a word. And identify what the child is feeling. He's feeling sadness, mm-hmm. loneliness, anxiety. Okay? Anger. Yes. So a right response, one of many, could be, you really miss your old school, don't you? You're feeling sad yeah. and lonely right now and a little bit anxious. It's hard to go somewhere with different people. See, okay. You're lowering the bra- drawbridge. Oh, I love that. You're lowering the drawbridge. And parents need to know what you're doing is you're, you're trying to just show them. You're not trying to agree or disagree. Or fix it. Or fix it. You're just holding up the feelings they're showing mm-hmm. so they can see them. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, watch this. So if I said, it sounds like, you, um, it sounds like you're, you're too afraid to go to your new school. So that's me trying to like project an emotion that he's not feeling. What do you bet the child would do? 
Well, fight back. Yeah. I, no, it's not that I'm not afraid. I hate it. Mm-hmm. It's not fear. It's hate. Mm-hmm. People will correct you on the feelings if mm-hmm. you get it wrong. Mm-hmm. But you're trying to just get show your kids feelings matter. Yeah, absolutely. You're having some. So I've got some other examples. We'll cool. save them to the end if we have time because yeah. I really want to get to why this is all valuable. Yes, talk. Why parents need to know that validation is so critical. Oh, yeah. Value. Because in the moment the child is screaming, I hate school or you're the worst parent ever or whatever, they're flooded, what's called flooded with emotion. Right. It's called drunk on emotion. A person mm-hmm. that's drunk is like staggering around. Yeah. They, no, it's James. It's totally James. <laughs> drunk on love. Drunk on love. And so he can't make lucid decisions. That's right. Yeah. And so he's probably bumping into walls in his apartment oh, right every now. every day. Yeah. So, you know, when you're drunk on emotion, you cannot have a cognitive, be in a cognitive position to make rational decisions. Right. The, the blood has flood, flooded out of your brain down to your, your amygdala back mm-hmm. here. Yeah, fight or flight. Yes. And so it's feeding that fight or flight. The prefrontal cortex of your brain is n- getting nothing. Yeah. And that's where you do your reasoning. So you need to stop and have them, through validation, feel... And get through that feeling, take some breaths, mm-hmm. acknowledge process what they're feeling, process it. And then what will happen is the blood will slowly come back yeah. to the brain yeah. and then that emotion will die down. So then they can start thinking rationally. Yeah, see, if, you, in, if you try to make them think, they can't. It's, it's, it's physically that, impossible. It's in that flooding, though, that mm-hmm. a lot of parents get hijacked and react to the flood. Mm-hmm. So then I react to your reaction and you react to mine and it's game on. And they were both flooded. That's right. Yeah. And we're both walking, bumping into walls. Yeah. So you're just saying we're going this is a method to process to kind of lower some of the emotion mm-hmm. And, and increase your understanding so you know what's going on before yeah. you drop those brilliant pearls. It's, it's just we need to know physiologically it's impossible for a child who's drunk on emotion to accept anything you have to say as far as fixing it or right. processing it or anything like that. You just have to let them feel it and get through with it and then go, oh, it's kind of like a child who or any of us who gets so upset and we just cry. Yeah. And then we cry it out and then we're like, all right, now I can move on. You just have to get it out. And so let them That's get huge. it out. So next one, we need to learn to put an appropriate name. And mm-hmm. I think your pro- your previous guest talked about this, about how they feel. So you can say, you know, the child says, I hate my teacher. You can say, wow, you sound angry. Versus. Tell, tell me why. Versus. No, you. we don't hate anybody. <laughs> don't use the word hate. We, we love all people. <laughs> so right there, I just told you, no, your feelings are wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. So you have to just let them have it. Yeah. It's, this is not going to make or break your child in this moment. Yeah. Just let them have their emotion. Yeah. Or she's the stupidest person I ever met. I mean, I would prefer her not to say she's the stupidest. Sure. But that's the strong feeling we have to get through that and go, yeah. well, you sound really angry at Car- Carlissa. What mm-hmm. did she do that I made you that. feel so, so? Versus saying, oh, you don't know stupid. Have yeah. you met Jimmy's mom? <laughs> Jimmy's mom's an idiot. And, and, I, and, I, and I changed it from the hate to now you feel angry. You turned it into an actual yeah, feeling yeah, yeah. that they could relate Next to. one. Um, the child will learn their feelings matter to adults who they can then trust with their feelings. If I'm shut down and if I'm invalidated and if my parent tells me, no, you don't and stop that, then I'm going to learn that my parent doesn't want me to feel. Mm-hmm. I can't trust them with those deep, deep so don't sensitive. Share the feelings. Don't share. And I will go somewhere else and share those. And a sign, I guess, if your child's not regularly sharing, mm-hmm. it might be because you've either invalidated mm-hmm. before or... 
They've never been coached on how to share a feeling, right. which and is if, why we're doing this. And if you're dealing with a five, six, seven-year-old with these little issues yeah. and you don't validate them and it keeps on going, when they're 15 and 16 and they have a big issue, mm-hmm. like but James. they've learned they've learned that mom freaks out and dad becomes unhinged, yeah. then they're not going to come to you Keep with the their secret. big Keep the stuff. That's okay. so good. All right. Um, the child will learn healthy responses to emotions. Mm-hmm. Um, this is what you said at the top of the, the show, that rather than shutting down or becoming emotionally bankrupt – uh, they turn to self-destructive behaviors because they don't know how to feel. It's just – it's emotional intelligence. Yes. We're going to take a break. Yeah. But when we come back, mm-hmm. I want you to keep teaching us and then you're going to do some role plays. Yeah. This will be so fun. Okay. And be thinking about James and yeah. how he could validate – how we could validate more of his love for his friend. <laughs> <laughs> tons of fun. Tons of fun here on the Matt Townsend Show. We're taking a break. More when we come back with Julie K. Nelson. This is the Matt Townsend Show. You're listening to us on BYU Radio. Back everybody to the Matt Townsend Show in the house, the bomb mom, child whisperer, Julie K. Nelson from a spoonful of parenting.com. Used to be from the Julie K. Nelson forward slash dot com. Good mama bomb com or dot org. But you fixed your website. I simplified it for you, Matt. A spoonful of parenting.com. Today you're giving us more. Like a ladleful, mm-hmm. a ladleful mm-hmm. of parents. I am. I'm doing the fire hose today. You're teaching us validation 101. Mm-hmm. So when your child has a feeling and emotion, you're teaching us what to do with that emotion so they stay emotionally engaged. Yeah. And so we talked about naming the emotion. Name it. Um, we talk about giving them the moment to get through it, whether that's to cry it out or just kind of get you know anger out of it, their what, system. What if their anger is uh-huh. directed to someone, something like they're throwing a ball, they're getting – Yeah, know. yeah. They like they hit their head through the wall. Yes. Yeah, we had a closet in my son's room that had a hole in it. Ooh. We replaced the wall or we replaced the closet. It got another hole in it. We decided we were not going to put a – a door on that closet from now on. Were you what, were you yeah. like putting your child in the closet no, and he walking? Was, he in was there? putting his fist through it. Really? But so no, we you talk about how these are things you can do when you're angry: scream in your pillow. You can go, you know, throw us basketballs mm-hmm. at the basketball hoop. You can, you know, this is how you get the energy out because you need to redirect yeah. that. But Re- if, but you're talking. What's so cool is you're talking about emotion. So instead of like trying to stop the hole, mm-hmm. you're now you're trying to do this up front. Get the emotion out mm-hmm. before. They feel invalidated and then have to go do something with it. Yeah. And there are boundaries. I mean, if they're screaming at you, then you need to say, you know what? You're angry right now, but, you know, we have to be respectful. Yeah. You know, so – and if they're hitting or throwing things, you have to say, you know, no destruction. No no, no destructive things. But, yeah, I I get it that you're mad. Yeah. You know, so uh, the other benefits of validating is that you – the child can – after they work through the emotion, they much more easily can get to the problem-solving part. And after they're done, oftentimes it's like, you know what, mom? I'm okay now. Yeah, you don't even need it solved. You don't even have the problem. They just need to get it out. But if you're like trying to rush in there and invalidate or fix it for them, they're not – they don't want to hear that. They just want to get it out and then they're like, you know what? I'll be all right now. Ironically, this sounds a lot like it would work on 
your spouse. Yeah, absolutely. This is like, like my yeah. wife would love me to. Well, and there's the whole you know thing about women, and if you want the men are the fixers, yeah, and the men want to come and say, "Hey, honey, you should do this." Yeah. No, I just want you to listen to me yeah. right now. That's all this. That's is. all wives want. And hold up the feelings. So the feeling is you're angry. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about your anger. Right, right. Cool. So um, last thing I think is really beneficial for validating kids or your spouse. Yeah, is that they can finally realize after so many of these that hey, I can get through hard situations because what I'll do is if a child or my spouse gets through another roadblock in their life and man, something else bad happens, mm. you know, I'll be like, you know, what? have you had something bad happen to you before yeah. and you worked through it and we got, we got yeah. through it. You've okay. Done this before. We've done this before. It's like, oh yeah, I've done this before. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, up there on the ledge ready to jump. And then I'm like, no, you know, I can talk them down off the ledge and saying, you know what? I, you've done through hard things. Yeah. You, it's not the end of the world. Then it's pattern don't recognition. Jump, don't jump. It's okay. We've done this. We've worked through this. And That's say, right. remember how you were rejected by your friends in seventh grade? Mm-hmm. This is just ninth grade rejection That's all right. over again. But you know, you live through it. That's it's right. okay. That was good. You know, so anyway, yeah. Let's talk about some roadblocks. Okay. Some role playing. Okay? Role playing and roadblocks. Uh-huh. To, to emotional intelligence. Okay, cool. Love these. By the way, okay. intelligence. So it's a knowledge. It's like a, uh-huh. it's a, it's a skill. Yeah. You can learn it. You can learn to do this. Mm-hmm. So if this doesn't come natural to you, learn. Yeah. You can learn this. And I have had many um, students tell me that their parents did shut them down, did not listen, did not let them feel their feelings, and that it came up out in, t- in adulthood in very, very destructive things. Oh, Research sure. backs this up. Those who um, go into drugs, those who are cutters, they do things to feel or to stop the feeling because they don't know how to process their That's feelings. And so they, those are signs mm-hmm. that – and this, those might be signs that – this is above your pay grade now. Go yeah. get some professional help. 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 Or a spouse. Let's just yeah. pick on the guys. Yeah, let's do um, that. Because the guys are often told, you, you, you're a, don't be a baby. Right. Be a man. Men don't cry. No, men don't cry. And so they'll grow up and then they'll marry a lady who wants to be emotionally open. Mm-hmm. And she'll be like, well, honey, you, you know, tell me about this. Why you, you know, why you, um, you know, why did this happen? And you're feeling sad about it. And they'll be like, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah, leave me alone. Leave me alone. And he'll shut down and turn away and, and he'll turn to, away from his spouse rather than to war because he can't process and and uh, express his feelings because he was never uh, allowed to. I think this is important. James, are you learning this? And there are a lot of spouses out there, I think, that are listening that can be like nod their head going, yeah, it's exactly mm-hmm. my spouse. He says or she says, I don't want to talk about it. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, maybe sometimes we worry they can't handle it because mm-hmm. if I if I actually did break down mm-hmm. and emote about everything I feel, my wife – would probably be like freaked out, like what a wuss. Come on, I hope not. You know what I mean? But see, hope, that's one of the fears yes, is that yes. can you and that, that where was can that? I we trust did, you we heard with a my feelings. About that. Can I trust you? You know, mm-hmm. and, and spouse should be able it? to spill. Yeah. And it's okay. And it's not the end of the world. That's why you're there. That's right. So let's talk about some roadblocks. Yeah. The first one is to be the parent that runs, so, so that spouse or the child is emoting. Yep. Then we want to order or direct or command. Stop whining. Right. Stop it right yeah. now. You don't like him? Well, just stop playing with him. Yeah. I'm ordering. I'm directing. I'm commanding you what to do. Do it now. Problem and solved. Problem solved. Uh, next one, threatening. Have you heard this before, Matt? Well, every day. James, have you ever heard this? If you don't start, stop your crying, I'll give you something to... Cry about. There you go. That's uh, Yeah. That's one of my favorites. <laughs> yeah. Um, when I was a child, um, here's moralizing or preaching. When I was a child, I never wet my pants in public. What's wrong with you? Yeah. You know? 
Or, school's hard. You don't know. You don't know how Up hard school can be. Ways in the snow. Yeah, those are good. Um, I've had enough of your complaining. Eat your broccoli. There's starving children in. By the way, these, Africa. These are a lot easier for me to do. Yeah. Than the validation. Why am I so good at these? Because we have our parents' voice in our head. These are the roadblocks. Yeah. See, our, this is what our parents did. Yeah. To this us. is the this is the moralizing. Yeah. Starving children in Africa who would love to eat this. You're just too spoiled. So, you know, appreciate what you got, buddy. Yeah. How about this name-calling or ridiculing number four? That's ridiculous. Shame on you for being so naughty. Yeah. 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 Or what would we say again about how boys don't cry? That's a, you're being a baby. Mm. Um, Mr. Weiner, I've had enough of you today. Doug and Wendy Weiner from Saturday Night Live. Do you remember that? <laughs> yes. That was a whole – that was a great segment. Yeah. Okay, number five, unproductive sympathies. Don't worry. Cheer up and everything will be just fine. Come on, pal. Hunker down. Hey, lots, it up. lots of people have problems bigger than yours. You should be grateful you're only five. Wait yeah. till you're 16. What if you had cancer? <laughs> yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> it's like – what are you talking about? But see, every one of those aren't – if you brought me any of those, those aren't my deal. You're bringing me your story before I even like you. The drawbridge isn't down. So whatever you say to try to like make it good, I'm, I'm not going to hear it because mm-hmm. you haven't put the drawbridge down. That's right. That's cool. I, in my, I've, I have a new book coming out and I do the drawbridge idea. But mine is that you're on one side of the river, your child's on the other side of the river, and there's this torrent going in mm. between you. That's the emotion. Yeah. And you're saying to the child, just cross. Just cross. I did it. Come on, bud. Come and on. the child's looking at that enormous river and all those waves. And he's like, I can't. I yeah. can't do it. So you need to cross the river because you know the way. You know yeah. how to do it. Hold their hand and help them to the other side. That's then you're a on a safe, metaphor. dry – you're on straight on the shore and now I can work through it. But there's this big, scary river, waves, you know, all kinds of things going on in between, which is the motion. Mm-hmm. And that's dividing the two of you. If you're on the other side just going, come on, just just do this. Just come, come on. on. You can do it. Buck up, buster. Because yeah, they're I, not going to hear you I over the it. river. That's right. That's right. That's right. So you got to cross. Metaphor. you got to cross over there. And just walk through those waves together. That's called that's that's empathy. You're mm-hmm. in their story. You've You're got their, their path. Shoes. That's mm-hmm. great. Absolutely great metaphor. What book is that? When's that coming? Well, out? it's coming out in March. It's called um, Keep It Real. Am I am I in it? You are great. Remember, I asked permission to put your dog story in there. Yeah, oh, that's yeah. Because I have a chapter on the benefits of pets in families. That is therapeutic, fantastic. therapeutic and united uh, benefits. Yeah, I'll just have my attorneys call you. Yeah, and you can get a cut of the sales. That is so great. Yeah. So it's called Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger: Twenty Five mm. Tips for Surviving Parenthood. That's great. Mm-hmm. And so, grab a plunger. Yeah, because one of the chapters is on doing housework together and how that can unify the family. And like, so the, yeah. the, the I don't know, I just kind of feel funny, but the, you know, the publishers decide what they're going to use for your title. Sure. And you're like, all right, I didn't expect to have a toilet tool yeah. be the like metaphor for all my right. parenting expertise. But nothing brings a family together more than <laughs> a, um, a, a clogged toilet. <laughs> Right. Everything comes out. So We're they, like, okay. They pick that out. And I'm like, okay, whatever. Whatever sales books. So. This is yeah. good. Yeah. Um, one more thing. What's the one thing? So if we have to do a takeaway, mm-hmm. well, we can keep going. What 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 do we else do we need to know? Well, do you, want to, do you want to try one? Let's yeah. do an exercise. Yeah. Okay. So this is your, your child, Matt. Okay. You, uh, you call your child home from playing at a friend's house. They complain that others get to stay later at the party. You never let me have any fun. Why are you so mean? The other kids are going to stay and watch the movie. Okay, wrong response. Okay. Do you want me to give you a one? Yes. 
That's a taser. You tase your kids. Through the, phone, through the phone. Through yeah. the phone. Okay, so here's another one. Um, well, we can't always have what we want. Mm-hmm. There's that. And uh, stop your griping. Shut, yeah, shut your mouth. Shut your mouth. Get grounded if yeah. you don't. Yeah. Um, hold on. Let me get your mom. That's a good <laughs> you one. You always do that. I like that one. Okay, so the parent is feeling. Now, again, they're coming from the perspective of they don't want to be compared to other parents. Mm-hmm. They want obedience. Mm-hmm. They want their child to, you know, that kind of thing. So it's not too bad of a place to come from. But what are the feelings that the child's feeling right now? The child does not want to come home. They're mm-hmm. discouraged. They're frustrated. They yeah. want the night to keep going. Yes. They want acceptance from friends. Yeah. They're embarrassed they because if be you have to leave in front of all your friends, yeah. my gosh, what are you, like five years old? That's right. Yeah. So acknowledge those feelings. So you feel frustrated that we you have to go and yeah. you're a little embarrassed because it's earlier than you want to go. Absolutely. Good response. Okay. And you can say, nevertheless, that's the agreed upon curfew. Yeah. Now, I say that to my students for someone who pushes the limits again and again and mm-hmm. again. Nevertheless, I love that. that's, that's, a what, cue. that's what we agreed on. Now, if it's a child, this is a one-time thing mm-hmm. and they're totally trustworthy, I'd say, I get it. You're angry and frustrated. And this is embarrassing. Let's, let's, you know, this one time, push it back a half hour. Yeah. You know, I, I'm flexible You're as a flexible. parent. But then yeah. when they get in the car and everything's calm and they're loving on you and telling you how great the night was, mm-hmm. then you might want to just say, hey, when you call, I can't have you like mm-hmm. complaining and yelling at mm-hmm. me because that made me so close to not letting you stay. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So if you do it again, we're going to have to let you go. Yeah. So uh, that's just one of those ones where you, you have to kind of judge by the, the child. Yeah. But every time the child is initially probably going to be a little bit agitated yeah. with you. But then you lower the emotion. You uh-huh. hear it. Mm-hmm. Your understanding goes up. And then you, then and you, you can... as a parent can discern uh-huh. whether I say, nope, nevertheless, you need to come home. Um, you know, we're, we're going to respect our curfew because you're on, you know, you've been on. You know, yeah. untrustworthy right. ground like, before. Well, and if you, what if the parole officer yeah, exactly. says yeah, you've got to be <laughs> That home. ankle bracelet's telling me. Right. Or you say, you know what, I, I can deal with that this time. And you use some of your problem solving at that time too. That is see Because both of you then are in the place to decide which way I want to go. Otherwise, right. I'd be like, stop saying that. Yeah. No. And then you fight for ground. And all you do is see how I can be the enforcer right. rather than the, you know, the reasonable parent. Well, and, and again, the door, the gate, whatever, the river is still there. So if you do this in any way that you haven't either empowered them to cross the river mm-hmm. or you haven't lowered the bridge, mm-hmm. next time it's going to be harder. Yeah. And then the next time it's harder. Mm-hmm. And then eventually they just don't go to you anymore. Yeah. And that's the worst thing. That's the take home message, parents. You need your child to be able to come to you with their deepest emotions and their feelings and what's going on in their life and trust you mm. that you will be there no matter what. And you're not the freak out parent and you're not the parent that's going to uh, judge and moralize, but that if you help them re- work through their problems together on the other side of the river, you can work through the solution. That's great. And often the child will just do it themselves. Okay, I, I'm in. Yeah, me too. I want to do that. Me too. Uh, until I can do it, I'm going to have my kids call you. And then I'd like you to interpret for me. <laughs> and all will be well. Okay, you're, are you going to stick with us? Sure. We have a, we have a great um, final block. It's going to be fun. Mike Pond's going to talk to us about how you know when you're in love. Oh, and he knows all about that. He knows. James knows. I've never had more love. There's a love fest in this room. It's a love fest. We'll be right back, folks. Continuing the love fest and understanding feelings up next on The Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends. That is the wrap-up music for the show, the final segment of the Matt Townsend Show today. By the way, hoedown music. And uh, how better to honor the uh, hoedown and the great hayride that is Mike Pond's Love Fest. What are you talking about, Matt? I don't know. Hey, uh, <laughs> talk about how you met your girlfriend at a hoedown at a barn here in Spanish Fark, Utah. Well, you know, it had been several years since I decided to you know, bust out the old cowboy Kelly boots. boots. yeah. And, and the chaps, let's be honest. It was a full moon. You know, it's, as so, it so Ooh, happened. Yeah. And Farmer's moon. Is that what they call that? Yeah. I think, you know, they were doing Harvest a square time. dance. Harvest moon. Harvest moon. Harvest moon. Farmer moon's <laughs> different. Harvest moon. Yeah. So you took her to the dance. And I just clicked my heels and I turned around and... And there peered she, across the hallway, and uh-huh, there she was. I don't know how to explain it. The moonlight was coming through the ceiling, and wow, there she was. Could you smell the cows? I don't know. They were probably sheep, not or for her sweet or perfume. Her sweet perfume. Hey, and um, but the, you have you are you are in true blue love. You know what? True I think, blue. I think James knows what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh no, he told. Look at him. He's just like Gaga, <laughs> goo goo. But you two, both, it's fun to look across and see both of you because you're you're both just giddy and just, like, I've never seen, it's almost like you're two Girl Scouts that just sold the most cookies. Yes. You know get the I mean? extra merit badge. <laughs> but you're like, you're giddy. You're so excited. Talk about love, Mike. Talk about, talk about how you knew. Well, you know, love is such a complex emotion, you know. Not really. It, no, it really is. Okay. I mean, there's because when you hear the word, I, I think people you, there's so many different emotions you feel. You either gag or you get butterflies. What are you getting stomach. right now as we think about your friend? I want to puke on you, Matt. It's that exciting. No, no, I'm so excited, so happy. This is a big deal for all the listeners because these are two gentlemen that we had given up on. <laughs> Pretty much. And then the love bug came around. Which goes to show you that the, every guy can actually find a girl no matter how ugly they are. Yeah. The, the guy well, or the girl? The guy. Because the girls they're dating are way out really of their league. Really cute. Way out of their league. Yeah. But that's just a great sign. Well, and after the javelin, the whole javelin yeah. incident, I just didn't think anyone would ever trust me with yeah. knives again. Or oh, yeah, for sure. Well, you and know? it wasn't even – it was really more the – yeah. A spear. Yeah, it's a spear. <laughs> Talk about um, – because the, the Greeks, this is what I love. Our, uh, the, la- the English language, we don't have a lot of words to express love, right? Charity, yeah. maybe But I mean, love. I love like tacos. Yeah, you love tacos. And, and I love my wife. But th- those are totally different types of love, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, you'd think so. But the, sometimes he loves tacos more than his wife. <laughs> it depends if it's taco day. Tuesdays. <laughs> you can get three for a dollar. Um, so talk about – because the Greeks had a bunch of words yeah, for in, love. In ancient Greek, in the language, they had more than six ways to distinguish uh, mm. different types of love and, and how that word yeah. is used. Yeah. Uh, there's four main ones. Yeah. And you're probably familiar with some of these. Well, J- James was just mentioning one. He was actually conjugating the Greek word eros. And that's that's uh, you know the passionate love, the yeah. physical love mm-hmm. that that we often see in movies, and mm-hmm. that's the love at first sight. Which eroticism love. came from? Exactly, mm-hmm. that's where the mm-hmm. word comes from. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Julie. Thank you. Um, um, that was true. 
good. That, that's romantic, pure emotion without the balance of logic in there. That's okay. James. That's it. That's why he's the doctor of pasión. <laughs> yeah, and that that's a different kind of love than you'd feel for for a son or a daughter or a or, taco or a taco. But see, then there's so there's the par, there's the parental love, and that is called uh, storge. 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 Yeah, you got to get the glottal. Yeah. Roll in there, Matt. Good. I, my glottal doesn't roll anymore. And that, that's the natural affection that's yeah. felt, you know, for, like for par- parents of offspring or, or a family, grandparents. But like, it's interesting because if you're – I would want – it sounds weird, but if I'm sick, that's kind of – that's probably some of the love I'd want mm-hmm. is a like your, your spouse to take care of you, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Maybe not Eros, but Storge. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, you know, and it's funny when – uh, you, you know, Plato, the famous Greek philosopher, yeah. talking about eros, that type of love, yeah. in his work, he, he said that, that uh, that's not a necessary part of love. There's much deeper affection that really? can be felt. That's good. Uh, and, you know, that's... See, but that's what we hold up. So when someone says they've fallen out of love, they've fallen out of eros. So really they should say, I do not eros you anymore. <laughs> yeah, that, that, you know that I mean? should be... And then you'd have the same kind of understanding. Yeah. Uh, but the more deeper sense, the, the spiritual sense of love, that's agape. Agape. Yeah. And that's a, that's a general affection. Or this, charity. This deep sense of true, uh, unconditional love. Mm-hmm. And that can be say. for anyone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's selfless. Mm-hmm. So you don't mm-hmm. expect anything mm-hmm. in so return. That's what you need, I think. You need that in your marriage and you need that for mankind. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That you don't one. need eros for everyone. Mm. You need agape for mm-hmm. everyone. That's right. And that, that one's a lot harder to get. Yeah. So you need that in your marriage because there's going to be a day when – There's no eros and you're going to have to just work right. off of agape. That's right. Yeah. And someone's sick and you're going to take care of them and – yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, that's so – so let's just clarify for you and James, Mike. Um, what love are we talking about with you, with you and your friends, your <laughs> girlfriends? Who wants to – Yes. <laughs> yes to <laughs> – yeah, that that one. All four. Wow. Yeah, I know, right? That's good. It's magical. You didn't say the third one. It was filial love, brother. Yeah, yeah. Love. That's uh, for your friends, mm-hmm. for uh, for your community. So he, uh, James, agrees. It's all four of them. And Mike, what would you, what love are you? Uh, what love are you? Um, probably what? five. Wow. Wow. Oh, I just changed my They're mind. They're having All a contest. Six. They're having yep. a contest over there. Oh, boy. There. They're trying to one-up each other. They really, are. Very they good are. demonstration I, I got 10. I got 10. I'm going to make up some new ones. Yeah. Well, well done, everybody. <laughs> Feelings. Uh, good job. Appreciate. I'm glad that both of you are in love with different girls. All, That's all great. All 12 types of love. Have you yep. both met each other's girlfriends, and are we sure it's not the same girl? Oh, no. Because <laughs> uh, we've never brought them into the room James, at the same time. talk. Oh, boy. Oh, no. We may be onto something. Hey, folks, thanks for joining us. We're going to take... We're actually done. We're done for the day. Can you believe that, how mm. time flies? Wow. Here's a quote when you're in love. Time flies. Uh-huh. Here's a quote from Wayne Dyer. If you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Boom. Write that on a pillow. Uh, tomorrow, we're going to talk about making a family work when they come together from a new marriage. Kind of blending families. Interesting topics. We'll be back tomorrow, folks. More fun, more ideas to help you see the good in the world. And to love the ones that uh, you're raising and living with. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Back tomorrow. Thanks for joining us.